Yeah. Acai. You can see, yeah. So get, see so get, a see YouTube, get a YouTube channel to say it. Curly Q thing yeah. on the sea. Acai. I'm pretty sure this is this berry never existed before <laughs> 2012. It's like yoga. How we pretend that yoga is ancient, but it was actually invented in like 1962. That's true. Yoga is ancient. That's true. What? Look it up. If it's publicly available. The beginnings of yoga were developed in the Indus Sarasvati civilization in northern India over 5,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's what the yoga people want you to believe, and that's probably on Wikipedia. You can look it up later. We could do a whole episode yeah, of yoga. Yeah, I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> no, I thought it was... I, I laughed out loud when I read about it. This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio, this is Design Goggles. This week's show is titled Disrespect the Hustle. Chances are... Right this moment, you're heading to work or back from work. Heck, you might be working right now. A lot of our lives are consumed by work, and if nothing else, it's an experience that we can all relate to. There's a new phenomenon in workplaces you might have heard of called hustle culture, and it revolves around the glamorization of overwork. Instagram stories with millennials and Gen Z workers mashing keyboards at 2 a.m., pounding coffee, and competing with others for the most intense work ethic has taken over social media in certain corners. There are a lot of strong opinions, both inside and outside the workplace, about the consequences of the trend. Is extreme overworking glamorous? What led to hustle culture, and what are its consequences for workplaces in terms of design? Should we be cheering on the hustle hashtag, or warning against the burnout of an entire generation? To help us break it all down, we are joined by Jeff Pelletier, founder of Board & Vellum, an architecture firm here in Seattle. Jeff, thank you very much for coming back again to chat with us. Thank you for having me. And in interest of full disclosure, again, Jeff is our boss and could technically fire us, technically during the podcast, but probably won't. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) You've been mashing your hands together like Mr. Burns, which is disturbing. But thank you for coming back. (laughs) This is something I've wanted to talk about this for a while, specifically with you, because you created a company that has a very forward-thinking work culture, regardless of what industry And also in that our industry is kind of known for being extreme in terms of work ethic and work culture and hours worked. And I didn't come across this phenomenon until recently. And it was shocking to me that working that much became popular because it certainly, even when I was working at different firms and working my butt off, I certainly was never like proud or like eager to share I was sleeping under my desk at my paid job as a 30-year-old, wasn't really something I was eager to share. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on it and what you've heard of hustle culture. So for me, I grew up back east and working a lot was kind of the thing you did. You know, an 80-hour work week when you started first design job was expected. It was weird you went home at 40 hours a week, but it wasn't necessarily glamorous. It was like a price you had to pay. It was like the thing you had to do. It wasn't something you're proud of. And so coming to Seattle, things were certainly different here. But still, when I first started, people were working like 50, 55 hours, and that was pretty normal. So when I started Board & Vellum, I thought a lot about, well, how do I change this? I want to be like the better boss. I have a culture where people actually are productive in the time that they're here. It's been a big shift because I think we're pretty different in terms of that regard. Right. And it seems like the thing you win is not working that much, right? It was like, if you work all these crazy hours one day, you'll win the ability not to. Exactly. Or you win the fact that, look, your hourly rate is the same as a McDonald's employee. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you have no pulse. (laughs) Yeah, that is insane. 
if that goes away, if you're not working to win that and you are working a reasonable amount, then what are you working for? Mm -hmm. And opens up possibilities. I think it's funny because architecture is inherently a job that typically you're passionate about. It's a creative profession. Artists and creatives typically are passionate about something and like what they're doing. And so I do believe that a lot of the case that happened back when I was working in New York City, for instance, was because it was kind of fun and it was addictive and you kind of fell into it, but it fed upon itself. It became this thing where, oh, these young people are willing to work late and they think it's fun, so let's make it cool. And it became this sort of spiraling thing. And I'm seeing that happen now, especially with the tech companies, where it might have been fun to work late on a product you care about, but that sense of, oh, this person stayed late because they love it. They must be willing to work late all the time. Let's just change the culture and make it cool. I think it's really scary right now. Do you think it's tied to generational differences? It might be. I actually think a big part of it is tied to where you are in your life in terms of being single and having kids. Mm. And that tends to fall in terms of generations. Right. Because people aren't necessarily having kids at 20 years old anymore. Right. And so the 20s and early 30s, people are typically without kids. Oftentimes they're single and they're just working late. And it's like, a look what I'm doing. I'm staying late. It's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. We're families with kids. And I know I have two kids myself. And I tried doing my own version of hustle culture and having kids. And I do not recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> where did you end up? So my sons are four and six right now. And we had our first kid, Kellen, and one kid was sort of easy. And I was like eating healthy and working out. And I had one kid and one of them was growing, but I was like, I've got this covered. I know how to do this. And then I had a second kid. And that year in 2014, Bordeaux Vellum was growing like crazy. We hired, I think, an employee like every 4.25 weeks. Sounds about right. And it's before we had a full-time office manager or overhead team. And I was frantically trying to keep things going. Like, let's not screw up payroll. Let's make sure that we actually are functional as a company. But also, I'm a father and my kid's not sleeping. And so it was like the worst year of my entire life. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But I think it also really informed what's possible. And we all have a spectrum of life. And a lot of us aren't going to have kids. A lot of us will. And figuring out how and when you can be passionate about things in life, I think, is a big part of the puzzle. And so it's knowing how do you, as a company, respect and employ people with kids mm -hmm. in a way that actually works for their schedule and allows them to be a good parent and not someone who resents work, but also someone who allows people who could be 25 years old out of school and excited about something and allows them to actually work a little more. You know, it's funny. There's actually something potentially pure about and innocent about hustle culture on one end of the spectrum. One of the things that inspired this podcast was an article that came out in the New York Times about the glamorization of overwork. And the New York Times turned off their comment section years ago. But now they do these invitational things where they'll say, read this article and comment, and they invite people to do it. And they used that article just recently, and they invited graduating high school students, college students, and people who had just entered the workforce. And all of them found the article almost obtuse. They were like, why wouldn't working all the time be a good thing? I don't get it. Like, they seriously did not understand the article. And on one end of the spectrum, that's actually sort of interesting. It's like, oh, wow, they are just going to make their mark on the world and throw themselves into it. Where I get concerned, and I'm curious about your thoughts, is when companies take advantage of mm -hmm. that. Because it's like, what generation hasn't been eager to make their mark on the world? Are they really all that different from wanting to do that? But when a company says, oh, yeah, thumbs up, post it on Instagram, making me all this money while I pay you nothing. And there were some pictures on that article of WeWork of like their water cooler or something. And somebody had hand carved, which is weird, hand carved the cucumbers in the water 
to say hustle or something. So first of all, why are they hand carving messages into the cucumbers in the water cooler? Second of all, where's the line between like encouraging employees to genuinely invest in themselves and grow and learn and then just like plain old taking advantage of free work? I'm first amazed that someone actually like had a job description. <laughs> hey, it's Monday morning. Hey, could you carve hustle into these cucumbers, please? <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's something we have to do. I was making my notes before this about what I wanted to talk about because it is something I care so much about. And I think one of the things that I find really interesting is creating that 40-hour workweek line in a way that feels respectful. One, of people wanting to go home and, you know, have a life or do whatever they want to do at home. Maybe they crochet or knit cat sweaters. I don't know, whatever they do. But secondly, people sometimes are passionate about what they do and may want to stay late on a project. And that's what they want to do. And so you want to find the line between letting people get the freedom to go home and also letting people have the freedom to stay late on something they love. Mm -hmm. It was kind of funny to me that three of us are in this podcast because the three of us are probably some of the biggest workaholics in this company. <laughs> And it's not because we're necessarily taking a work we don't want or doing stuff. It's because part of what we're doing is, I mean, it's, you know, seven o'clock at night right now. And we're here at work because that's what we love to do. And so if you create a culture that's too extreme, that's, you know, don't hustle, go home, you're actually not giving the space for people to excel and grow in their profession. But in the same respect, if you make it so everyone feels like they have to be there, then it's just FaceTime. I can tell you when I would work at firms, and it was 8 o'clock at night because I felt like I had to be there because the boss was there and half the staff was still there. I was not being my most productive. It was not something that was like a shining moment of my career. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I've been in that position before, too. And it was always tasked with carving cucumbers, which now makes <laughs> yeah. so much more sense. <laughs> the old cucumber carver. <laughs> That's what really this podcast was about. Every day I'd come in and they'd just dump a bag of cucumbers on my desk. And I just had to wait for the message with an exacto. <laughs> it was humiliating. By the way, I got the cucumbers on my desk. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll get to that. <laughs> Another thing that was mentioned in that article was Gary Vaynerchuk, who I was actually turned on to a little more than a year ago by a former client, an entrepreneur who posted stuff by him all the time on Instagram, and I sort of started following him. And I find him very interesting, and I'm just going to give it a little background, so if you're listening you've never heard of Gary Vaynerchuk, you'll know what we're referring to. Gary Vaynerchuk is an entrepreneur. He's an early investor in a lot of really good companies to be an early investor in, like Facebook and Amazon and eBay and Instagram and, you know, all of those hit. So he got this huge amount of cash at a very young age and he became an entrepreneur. He opened up a, um, a social media advertising company, a wine company, and he just kept doing. And without even intending, he became what New York Times called the patron saint of hustle culture. And he never really intended that. And actually, the article I'm referring to in the Times sort of misrepresented him a little bit in that he never suggested anyone work themselves to death. He never suggested anyone work themselves until they're depressed or even work for someone else 80 hours a week. In fact, one of his most famous quotes that I like to say all the time is you can work 40 hours for somebody else or 80 hours for yourself. So one thing I was curious to ask you was, do you agree with that statement, i.e. did you live that statement? And is that a good thing if it's reality or a bad thing? Oh, it's so true. Yeah. It's spot on. Now, I've thought a lot about the fact that when I was starting Born of Elm, it felt like an investment of time. I knew that if I, it's like you plant the seed, you got to do the garden thing. It's a really horrible analogy. <laughs> do the garden thing? Yeah. By like the way, we offer like. landscape architecture. <laughs> this is a family podcast. And by the way, Jeff Pelletier does not do that service. So you're <laughs> he hires people to do the garden thing. It felt like if I didn't invest, if I didn't wholeheartedly throw myself into this thing I cared so much about, it could fail. And then the time I'd spent previously was not going to be worth it. 
And so I really did map out a plan that I was working 80 hours a week for myself. I had a blast. It was so much fun. Again, when I had two kids, it was horrible. I was exhausted and tired, and I felt like it had to move. And it actually became sort of the genesis, actually, when I had Zachary, my second kid, to change how the employees interacted with everything. And things kind of shifted at that point, where I realized that people needed to take ownership of the process and the work, because if they didn't, I would keep working, and I would resent them, and they would resent me, and it'd be kind of weird. And so things have evened out in a big way now. I mean, I still probably work 45, 50 hours a week every single week. A lot of that's on me because I kind of love that stuff. I'm okay with it. I still have personal time. I still do all that kind of stuff. But I think if you don't create an out for yourself, then it does become this horrible thing where at some point, 80 hours a week for five, six, seven years doesn't work. It's actually why when I thought about what happens at some point, do I retire? Do I promote other principles, whatnot? We're moving to become an employee-owned company for the very purpose of if people feel ownership, not just metaphorically in terms of, oh, I own this document I'm producing or I own this project I designed, but actually like I own the profit we're making in the firm, people will give a little more and have a little more ownership in the process. Did you find it glamorous when you were working 80 hours a week? I certainly did not find the actual work glamorous. I'm going to be there late at night and I was creating a social media post that was really put together or whatever I was doing or trying to get drawings at the door or something. It was stuff that I know we needed to have a full package and I had to get it done. But there is like a busy contest in Seattle. Seattle used to be all about what you did for fun, how much free time you did, how much you went hiking. And since I moved to Seattle 18 years ago, it shifted in a big way to like, who's the busiest? Someone asks you, how you doing? And you're like, oh, whoa, things are just insane. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't hurt the fact the economy is just on fire here. And so everyone is just frantic. Like, I can't return phone calls enough. Things are great. How busy are you? And so you go somewhere, you feel like you have to have a contest. No, no, I'm busier. No, 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 no. I'm busier. You know, it's funny. That brings up a really good point about the sort of extended economic boom here, even more extended than other parts of the country. It seems like from talking from a lot of people from Seattle, when the economy wasn't good, it was kind of like, how creative can you be? Ostensibly, you have extra time and you can do something with it and make something cool. And thankfully, a lot of that is carried over. But now you can kind of do as much as you want in Seattle. There's so much opportunity. And so South Lake Union is this new place where people are working insane hours and it's a living, breathing, separate culture. And all of a sudden, maybe some of us are feeling like, oh, wait, am I standing still because I'm not doing that? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. It just occurred to me that the whole discussion about working for yourself 80 hours a week or working for someone else 40 hours a week, whatever it is. Part of the thing that's sort of sad to me is that when you work, say, 80 hours a week at some other tech company, and you weren't necessarily like in charge of what you were doing or the process or what you're creating. That does seem sad. It doesn't seem glamorous to me. It doesn't seem rewarding. But if you're doing something that you're creating something, that does seem like it could be worth it to me. And I know for me, I have no regrets, the hard work I did. And even now when I work, you know, I put the kids to bed, spend two more hours on my computer dreaming or writing a blog post or thinking of something. I love that. That's my passion. Rachel, you have like a, a side hustle. I love that phrase. Which is really just a second full hustle. <laughs> yeah, I love, like the word side hustle really doesn't yeah. give yeah. it credit. I think that's one of the reasons I find this whole topic challenging, really, because I think everybody is doing their various levels of hustle for very different reasons. And it's really hard for anyone that isn't that particular person to understand what the balance is of why you're doing it at any given time, like what it really is. And it's hard to look at a whole social media culture that's developed around it 
I don't think we're really seeing the real picture in the social media context. Carlos, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but Mm -hmm. there is a very big difference between the potentially faux reality that people present on social media versus the actual reality for what their motivations are and what they're doing and what their long game is and why they're doing what they're doing. And there is a whole lot of people that are promoting hustle culture, perhaps publicly, that really have no... it, it It can even be like a really sad thing, like that you they are literally working all the time because... That's what they have to do. It literally gives them the money that they need to pay their oh, really? bills. Yeah, yeah. And so it's almost like a coping mechanism to present this public social mm-hmm. output that says mm-hmm. that you're not hating yourself or mm-hmm. something. If you have that public persona of, of like, I'm a hard worker, I'm hustling, even if your life is terrible, it looks better. I mean, so I really feel like it's difficult for anyone to judge whether this is a societal issue because we don't actually know what the truth is. It's mm-hmm. almost like this ties into our like post-truth, post-truth. thing because like Nothing's what real. is true on social media versus yeah. what is true in somebody's real life. People have dual accounts. That is their personal brand that they're maintaining publicly that mm-hmm. might be all about hustle culture when in real life, you know, it's just, it's so difficult yeah. and everybody's motivations are different and they probably are shifting. Like each individual's person, their motivations will shift with time. I have a whole secret Instagram profile where I airbrush abs on me in the garden. <laughs> in the garden. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what I Yeah, You know, I do think actually the generational thing is an important thing to talk about because hustle culture is such a thing, particularly with millennials and Gen Z. Spoiler alert, I'm super old. We're old. Jeff, we're old. Sorry, we're old now. I'm older, actually. We're old. You are. You're older than me. But our generation, and the baby boomers definitely, forget is that the beginnings of our career was in a pretty stable-ish economy. And we were able to build those early years without extra anxiety, just the normal anxieties. And all really generations after us had a much more anxiety-filled first few years of their career. Graduate from college, dot-com bust. Graduate from grad school, 2008 recession. There has never been a part of our adult life that wasn't completely insecure. Yeah. And sometimes, I know I am definitely guilty of this, I look at something like hustle culture and I'm just like, God, glamorizing that, placing all your self-worth and how much you're working, that's crazy. But then I, you know, I do alumni interviews for for college and the competitive edge you need to do what you want to do is nothing compared to what we get to deal with. Even my dad, who teaches at a prominent university, he jokes with all the faculty that they would never get in if they applied, even with their current CV. There's no way they'd get in. Wow. And that's kind of crazy. At the same time, an interesting thing that Gary Vaynerchuk talks about all the time is that, by the way, he's our age, Jeff. Uh, He's like... 27. <laughs> 27 going on 22. No, he's like he's like early 40s. Okay. And, you know, he talks about social media and most of his audience is Gen Z and millennials. And he talks about how today is the closest thing to a meritocracy that has ever existed. And that previously you had to have a crap load of money to get any idea distributed on any level. And there were huge barriers because you had to know the right people. And now most of those outlets are free. And he talks about the opportunities, even though it's easy to say, oh, my God, it was a great economy when they came out of school and then just be like aggravated. But at the same time, they have opportunities, those generations that we didn't have, which is really fascinating. There's something about the side hustle that really intrigues me, because I think that when I came out of college, the idea of a side hustle seemed absurd. 
I had one job and I would work really hard at that one job. And in theory, I would be rewarded eventually and be promoted and would do really well. But I think people in a younger generation, it really became prevalent that one job was not going to be enough. And it wasn't so much about rewarding, but I think your point, Rachel, about economics of it was true. People had to make additional money to live in the cities they want to live in. And so it's really common for people who are younger than me to have two jobs. Mm -hmm. Think about everyone here in this office and so many people have different side hustles and it's just kind of baked into what has to happen. Part of me is excited about the fact that people get to be rewarded by passions they have. But also, it's sometimes a sad necessity to live in the city. Not all of those side hustles are creative passions either. I mean, there are people that have side hustles like driving for Lyft or Uber or something. But, or dog know, walking. Walking dogs or whatever. And maybe there's some passion there we for do. sure. There are some people in the office too. But, and I think it's another one of these things where it's hard to understand why different people do what they do. But one of the things that I see millennials accused of a lot is that they're doing all these side hustles and there's sort of a lack of understanding about the actual economic situation of it because people that are of my generation will be like, oh, well, we have our student loans to pay. But people of older generations remember what student loans were like, and they had interest rates of 3%, which is not true. Like the people my age, like it's not at all unusual Many of my peers have six figures of student loan debt with a 7% interest rate at best, like the federal loans. Mm -hmm. They're paying mortgages for houses they don't own because of that burden. I just think it's really hard to tell whether people are glamorizing the hustle because it's the only way they can make themselves, at least publicly, feel like they're getting somewhere against really difficult odds. And at least having a public front of I am enjoying this and I'm working hard and maybe it will come true that I will be able to get to where my parents have been. Mm-hmm. We're the first generation where that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And some of us will. And, you know, some of us started from positions of privilege and it's hard still. I feel like we're putting words into people's mouths about why they're hustling and why they're doing the things they do, because a lot of people don't have an option. But I think you touched on something really important, which is all we had to worry about. I'm pointing at Jeff because you can't see that because you listen to the radio. All we had to worry about was getting a job. And millennials and Gen Z, getting a job is just part of the equation. It's I need a job and my side hustle needs to work because at some point, getting a job wasn't lucrative, really isn't lucrative anymore. That used to be the solution. You get out of school, you get a job. You have money, you can sustain yourself. And that's not the case anymore, basically because of greed. At some point in the 50s and 60s, most companies, especially bigger companies, felt a responsibility to educate their employees, provide retirement benefits to their employees, all sorts of benefits that aren't given by most large companies today. I read this in an article once. I forget who said it. At some point, companies decided they liked their employees to be poor. Wow. And... That's never, unfortunately, been truer of a lot of larger companies these days. And I think that's part of why. I mean, student loans are a whole other thing. But part of why is that you can't really make money at a job, true job, not at least in the first five years. Part of it is, especially in a career like architecture, for instance, you know, the first five plus years of freshmen are just poorly paid. And there's no getting around that. Mm -hmm. That's just what the market is. And it's tough, but it isn't so much the pay. It's the fact that everything is so expensive. Yeah. You know, my in-laws always mention the fact that when they got married 50 something years ago, you know, one of them worked as a teacher and one of them worked as a, you know, entry-level accountant. And they lived off of one person and bought a house with the other person's salary in like the first six months. That's impossible. Even I think in the 20 years since I've been out of school, like I bought a house super young because I could get zero down for a mortgage at like 3%. 
And I was like, sure, I'll max up my credit cards and get a house. And, you know, I lucked out because yeah. I got a house. And now it's just that's kind of impossible. Yeah. It's really, really hard. So it becomes a thing where not only do you have to get the side hustle, but the reality is still out there. The fact that you have to work really hard at your job in order to move up in that job. That's still a thing that still exists in the world that, yeah. like, your oh, job yeah. is the way to go. We have to work your butt off on that job really, really hard. And... Have a side hustle. Mm -hmm. But eventually, maybe. I bet, you know, ask somebody climbing the ladder at Enron how their ladder <laughs> climbing went. That's a deep dive right there. Yeah. <laughs> right. But again, we're old. I covered that earlier. Again, millennials and Gen Z growing up in a generation watching Enron disappear, watching giant companies where something like that seemed like, well, eventually it'll pay off also now seems like a crapshoot, like you put it. So people in the millennial generation were raised to work their asses off. We were raised on this idea that, yes, if you work hard and do these things, you will get to where you want to be. And yet time and again, things have occurred on a global and mm -hmm. national and local level that have made that much more difficult. But you can't shake that idea that, like, if I just keep pushing, I'm going to find a way out. I'm going to get ahead and earn this thing. But compounding all that, it's now completely global. No longer do you just need to be the best in your city or even your niche within the city or your industry. It's a global society of work culture now. We're so interconnected oh, yeah. mm -hmm. that it's not like any one person can just decide, oh, I'm just not going to hustle so hard anymore because there is a world of people who aren't on that page right now. I would love to retire. That would be cool. But like somebody's going to need to cut me a giant check in order to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also a really big shift in perception of what others have with mm -hmm. technology and the Internet. Yes. Everyone's really in social media, especially everyone sees what they have is not enough. Now, certainly, I think your points are all really valid and true, but I think it's made worse by their perception of, oh, look, there's a 25 year old who has a great loft apartment and a brand new car and all this kind of stuff. What am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. And it's the whole American economy and culture is basically built on you don't have enough. And I guarantee this absurd as it sounds is probably people who are worth tens of millions of bucks who feel poor. As insane as that sounds, the system is so strong that people feel like, I need to work harder. I don't have enough. I don't have the bigger apartment, the bigger house, the bigger boat, or any little thing. And it's all sort of a gradiated system of just around the corner, if you work a little harder, push a little more, you'll get the next thing. There's no end site. There's no end goal. And this links right back into social media that we were talking about before and whether or not what we're seeing in the culture of the fear of missing out and all that and the kind of stuff that ended up leading to, you know, fiascos like the fire Festival, things like that, like mm -hmm. the, the kinds of things that stoke that stuff. A lot of it just isn't real. It's just mm -hmm. how have these people presented themselves on social media to make other people feel like they don't have what they want. And if they just did this thing, mm -hmm. they could get there. So there's a whole tricky digital social world of reality and not reality and how it's influencing us in our real lives and some of that we share and some of it we don't. Mm -hmm. And it's really pervasive and I think a lot of people don't see through it and suffer from that. It actually reminds me of a discussion I was having with a friend about the lifestyle of hustling. That it's almost like working really hard and being super busy. And I'm referring not just to work, but like the busyness of Seattle. Oh, I volunteer here. I do this, whatever it is being busy like that's a lifestyle now that's like an aspirational thing of like oh i wish i was that busy then i could complain too <laughs> because i have lots of friends with kids and other people who are in this industry with me and it's nuts everyone is just out of their minds and feeling like they can't keep up they have to work harder do more but it's sort of like a badge of honor in some ways to some level or at least they're trying like you said earlier to package it is like do they wear the hustle as a point of pride to give themselves some pride with something they're not proud of I don't know. I feel like authenticity plays a role also. 
You mentioned before that the three of us are some of the most ridiculous workaholics in the office. I don't ever really feel like I need to push myself to do more. If anything, it's the opposite. I'll be sitting for a little while and I'll just feel like there's this inertia. I need to be doing something. I got to use this time. I have to do this and I have to do that. And like, I remember we had a conversation once. I can't remember. This was years ago. It was like some end of year, I don't know, like thinking about what to do for the year ahead. And I said something along the lines of, you know, I'll fill the time somehow, Jeff. Like, you know, I'm going to do something with my hours because I can't help it. Actually, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this, too. Like, he can't help it no matter how rich he gets because he's he's rich. Like, he could retire now and he's 42 or whatever. But he's just going to keep working because it's what he does. That's his normal. And so if it's not your normal and you're destroying yourself, there's probably something wrong. If it's not like authentic to you and you have options. Well, and there's also a level of whether or not you're promoting the work that you're doing. No, you're promoting the hustle culture because, yeah, yeah, I work way too much, but I don't promote it on social media. Right, And you're never shaming anybody to be like, I had 12 cups of coffee today. How many did you have? Hashtag hustle. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like. Are we talking about whether or not we are promoting it or should be or should companies be stepping up and promoting or actively working against it? You know, it's a phenomenon that's way too big for any like one company to really do anything about. Like mm-hmm. this is a global thing that's happening to more than a generation. Like we're talking about millennials, but it's not just that. It's happening everywhere. We would be a tiny voice to be like, mm-hmm. oh, let's just not, you know. But what it masks is unpaid work. Yeah. I mean, plain and simple, that's what's really happening. Even if people are having the time of their lives working but at 2 a.m. Instagramming themselves. some of those people that themselves. are hustling are getting paid on their second job. Yeah, you know, their side, side hustle, hustle yeah. is paid most of the time, hopefully. You know, your second high side hustle. Well, about that. Or, yeah. or it's like you're doing things that are getting you to the next level of education that you need to get the new thing. If I try to look at it in the most optimistic way, Mm -hmm. which has come up on this podcast, it's not my nature, right? It's funny, though, but you keep saying optimistic things, Rachel. I I think your nature may be changing. I'm trying to learn. (laughs) Expand my horizons. Proof design goggles saves lives. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But humans don't always make good choices. A lot of times we make really bad choices. A lot of choices may end up having been bad choices in retrospect, but at the time you had to make a call and you had to decide even if this work is going unpaid right now, You know, you're on salary and these hours are not going to be compensated. And if you did the math, you're working for way less than minimum wage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are bargains that you make to decide, is that work part of the path to where you're going? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. A lot of times you don't know that ahead of time. And it's just part of that ongoing equation of the choices that everybody makes as they navigate the Mm -hmm. complicated world that it is. Speaking of the choices, it's funny. I've been debating if I want to bring this up or not because it's kind of odd. But I hustled my butt off when I started this company, primarily with the goal that people who work for me wouldn't have to hustle. You know, work really hard so I can create a safe space. People can do really well. And we got a really great reputation for being a great place to work. People would come in for interviews and be so laissez-faire, be like, ah, you guys seem awesome. I can't wait to come and kind of relax at Board and Vellum. And I was like, no, we do work. Like, what are you talking about? And there's a perception I've heard of people think like, do you guys actually do any work up there? Are you just like (laughs) podcasting and running community events and having, you know, Which is a compliment and an insult at the same time, I feel like. Simultaneously. And so we had this term that we were using called the Board and Vellum 40, which is the running joke, not just the 40 pounds that I gained from all the candy and food here. But it's the fact that 40 hours a week that you work here should be really hard, that you're here to hustle in the 40 hours a week, and that if you want to go beyond that, you can. But I think there's also a perception sometimes if you swing the pendulum too far in one direction, there's a sense that, oh, I'm not finished my work yet, or I made a mistake, but 40 hours a week, so I'm going home. 
And I think there's something about you can strike the balance between, yeah, 40 hours is the absolute goal. Some weeks it'll be 32 because you worked hard the following week, but it's being able to sort of judge as a professional when to throw your effort in and when to sort of relax. It's a loaded statement. (laughs) (laughs) Especially as an owner of a company, I'm so careful because I respect people have strict schedules and have to work, you know, some people work 39.5 hours every week and that's all they can do and they make it up, you know, every quarter. Some people don't have that restriction. And Mm -hmm. so when they're here, they work their butts off. But there's times, though, when you have a deadline or something and you just got to buckle down. And that's, I think, a tough thing to communicate in a way that feels respectful. I read another interesting article. I'm reading a lot of articles. I swear I do work. I don't just read articles. Oh, we do important balance. That's right. We podcast, we blog, we Uh read articles. That's right. About work-life balance. But it was an interesting perspective. I hadn't quite ever read about work-life balance before. About how work-life balance is viewed as this daily curve that goes up and down. And it's the amount of hours I spent today working and today not working. Or in a very small capsule a week. If I did more than 40 this week, I worked too much, less I worked too little. And it instead took an approach of look at a work-life balance over the course of a year or five years. If you're overworking yourself over the course of five years, yeah, you have no work-life balance. But if you went through a period of time that was insane, and if you balance that out later, that's also work-life balance. And it's not that one of these things is wrong and the other is the right way to approach work-life balance, but there's more than one way to look at it. And so like the Board of Vellum 40 isn't even really a real thing. It's more of a you can, if you want, do that and be a really good employee here. You can also do it eight different ways and Mm -hmm. be a really good employee here, which I think is really cool. It reminds me of the whole FaceTime thing. So when I started, it was very important that you were visible in the office by eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning back in New York. Didn't matter what you were doing, but Mm -hmm. you had to be there and that you couldn't leave until the boss left. And even then, stay a half an hour, an hour beyond that because you had to be seen. Now, how productive you were being was kind of irrelevant. It didn't matter. Just you were there. And that rewarded a culture of people showing up early and staying late. But if you showed up super early, it didn't matter. It was like, you don't get extra credit for that. Who cares? It rewards people who are night people, things like that. Yeah. And that just screwed up. Like everyone has different schedules. And compensation mostly tied to politics. Yeah. So like that's the irony of the whole thing is that game was completely divorced from how well you were doing at work. Yet we were all just like Stockholmed into it. (laughs) Jesus. So true. So what happens next? Companies aren't doing what we're doing. It's not really changing. And there's no impetus for them to change. They're making tons of money. And if an entire generation of workers wants to come out and literally work themselves to death, they continue to go to the bank all day, every day. Is there going to be some shift? Are companies going to start to get punished for treating their workers badly or rewarded for treating their workers well? Is that culture changing among business leaders? But how do you separate that from people that are working hard on several jobs with several companies? Because it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, they could be working for one company that treats them really well, but it doesn't pay them enough, and so they have a side hustle. It's a complicated problem. Yeah, it's not black or white. And it's funny, one thing I hear a lot, also from Gary Vaynerchuk, is like, oh, if you only make $50,000, you should be living a $25,000 a year lifestyle. And that just makes me angry. Like, no one does that. No one's like, I'll give up everything I have and do less. That's one of my pet peeves, is when a business owner, especially somebody like Gary Vee, goes to people and they're just like... Oh, you totally should live rich. Just live at a $25,000 lifestyle and you're a rich person. It's not possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go and buy healthy food. Sorry, you can't do that. Go and travel. Also things you can't do. And it's not to say that there isn't a value in, you know, being frugal with your money. Certainly like my first job and everything, I was poor as all hell. But still, you have aspirations to move up. I think for me, your question about what to do next, are things changing? Big picture? No, I don't think they really are. But I see little bits of hope every single day. When I talk to other owners of design firms, 
where I hear from people. And things are changing. They are trying to move the needle. And part of what we try to do here, even on this blog post, is say that it's possible. Try a different way. If we were run like a normal design firm, I don't think we would be successful. Part of why we've been successful is running things differently and saying we can chart our own course. Now, is that course perfect? By no means, no. But I think we're changing the conversation and trying to make things better. And in the end, I thought about this a lot, like, well, what happens if I don't change the world? What happens if I don't change everything else? Well, I've changed myself. And that's kind of the best you can do in your life. And I think we've done that. I think all of us are constantly trying to make things better and tell the story. I talk to other owners of design firms all the time. And I'm like, it's possible. You can try to change how this works. And I think the prize or sort of the goal that is tangible is there's lots of reward in society. There's money. Money has a sort of reward up to a certain point, And then it's been proven that it actually doesn't really matter. You can pay people enough for a little while and then it doesn't matter. But you've got to give people professional and personal ownership of things and pride in what they do. And if you can't do that, then I don't think things are going to change. You know, as a design company, we don't have endless amounts of money. But like, what can we do? Well, we can make people feel like they learn really well, are better in the process and things like that. And I think that's what people can take into other companies. Because we're not all giant tech companies that can afford anything. Right. What do you do if you can't? Well, you can certainly provide ownership and pride. That's a really good point. Uh, and it's funny, like you can't tell a person coming out of school to go work at Board Bellum. They don't really have that choice. We're a tiny little firm out in some city, probably very far from wherever they are. Probably never heard of it. You've probably never heard of us. So in fact, you're probably not even listening to the podcast. So what do you tell somebody coming out of school that's facing the options they're facing? I struggle with this myself when I'm doing alumni interviews. It's just like, I want them to be inspired. I want them to feel they can make a difference. I want them to not kill themselves when they go and they take their first job. How do you prepare somebody for the first five years of work in architecture the way it is now? If someone starts at a, a job, say a design firm that's well regarded and it's awful, and maybe they've had exciting ideas and they try to bring them to the table and nothing happens, there's a perception sometimes that some of these bigger firms that are well known that you've got to stay there. You don't have to stay there. That's one of the biggest things that you can leave. Now, of course, if we're in a recession, it's a different story. Sometimes you just got to bear through it. But I would say if you can leave, find a spot, and they do exist, where there's some window of opportunity to provide your value. Bring an idea to the table that's new, that you feel passionate and ownership on. I think that's the hope. And if you can't do it in your firm, do it on your side hustle. Show the value you can do on your own, and that will allow you to find a job where someone sees what you're doing and values it. Good advice. And stay strong. It's tough out there. <laughs> and remember, you can always eat the carved cucumbers as well. You could eat So if you're hungry cucumbers. and you, you, you can't afford dinner, just dip into that WeWork water cooler well, awesome. and eat the cucumbers. <laughs> we are just about out of time. Thank you very much for coming back. Really appreciate it. Hope you'll come back again. Definitely. And it'll be funny. It'll be funny. And thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.